Last Friday, I got to take my oldest son on a father-son camping trip, first ever for uh, myself and my six-year-old Nathan. We got two other boys and and a girl, but two other boys, meaning we'll we'll have hopefully future father-son outings, but um, we went to join some friends in Augusta, and my... Myself and Nathan got to go camping, and the rest of my family stayed with some friends in Augusta. And I don't know if you experienced this, but whenever you try to get a family, especially a family with four small kids, uh, all packed up and out the door, even for an overnight outing, it is a, a chore. Um, and usually, at some point along the way, uh, temperatures rise a little bit, and tempers may flare a little bit, just trying to get everybody in the car and, and, and out the door packed up and ready. And what usually happens with us is the house is left in, in, in a wreck. Just our, our focus, our point is to get everybody ready in the car and out the door because we're going somewhere. And it's, it matters more that we're, if we get where we're going than how the house looks that are left behind. We'll fix that later when we get back, right? Contrast that with uh, when you have folks over. If you have a guest, especially an important guest, into your home, uh, the opposite takes place, Right? It's not, uh, you're not focused on getting somewhere, you're focused on getting your house, your home ready for this important company. So the vacuum cleaner comes out, and you got a baby in this arm and a vacuum cleaner in this one, and you're yelling at the kids to pick up the playroom and to make up your beds, and it's frantic, it's a frenzy, you've got stuff in the oven, if you're cooking a meal, you're trying to get everything ready for this important guest to come. See, the direction of your focus, whether it's if you're going somewhere else or you're having somebody come to you, really changes and directs where you put your efforts and what you leave undone and what you you really put your efforts to do. And we argued, I argued last week from the scriptures that it's something similar when we look at the the scriptures of of where we're headed. If we have a perspective of where things are headed uh, at the end of of all things when Jesus comes back, that, that we're going somewhere else, then we'll pretty much leave this earth, this place, uh, a mess. Or, or, or at least our, our focus will be somewhere else, of going somewhere else. Rather, if we, if we view, as, as, I, as I think the Scriptures teach, as we argued last week, that it's not we're going somewhere else, but ultimately Jesus is coming back here. The King is returning. Then that should affect and inform uh, how we spend our time, where we focus our efforts in preparing this place for the return of the king. Um, that's what we talked about last week. And if that's true, as I believe it is, then it begs the question, what, what does that mean for the work of our hands today? Uh, what will remain of what we see today? What, what is, where is there continuity and discontinuity? What does it mean for uh, a term like our culture, for where we spend most of our waking hours at work or, or in our homes. And what I hope to do is look at Isaiah 60 today and as, as just a, a jumping off point, because there's, there's many more scriptures that speak to it, but look at Isaiah 60 to inform the answer to that question. What will become, if Jesus is coming back here to, uh, to bring heaven to earth, to, to create a, a recreate, renew the new heavens and the new earth, then, then what does that mean for us today in the works of our hands? Let's read together Isaiah 60 and, and just see what, what we can draw from this passage. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall come, co- cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the people, the praises of the Lord. Sorry, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebiah shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nourish at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation. And your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, or your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. So much in this passage that we could talk about and unpack. If you want an overview of a a brief summary of that, you can go online and listen to a a brief sermon that I got to preach here a couple weeks ago that gives you the basic outline. We're not going to cover all of it today. We're not even going to try We're going to look at a few verses uh, in the midst of this chapter to answer this question. If where things are headed is that King Jesus is coming back to not annihilate, but to restore, renew this creation, to bring heaven to earth and to set up his reign in full to complete the work that he started, then what does that mean for the work of our hands today? We think about it as we look at this chapter. It, it looks like uh, it looks like a big parade. 
It looks like a big inauguration. It looks like um, a, a big event. I, when I grew up in Irwin County, and we had every year the Sweet Potato Festival. Anybody ever been to the Sweet Potato Festival, Irwin County? Um, my sister, and when she was really, really young, was the, the Sweet Potato Princess. Um, so you can, if you know Allison, you can make fun of her about that. Um, we had cooking contests. We had uh, 4-H. We had all kind of things going on. But what would happen is uh, we had a big parade that was the culmination of this, this week-long sweet potato festival. And what happens to parades in, in, in small towns um, like, like Osceola, Georgia? Well, they'd come and they'd, people, the schools would decorate floats and they'd all parade their floats through, uh, through the city and then there'd be sweet potato princess at the end. And, and then you'd have fire trucks, right, blaring their sirens and throwing candy. And the kids would be scrambling all over the place and parents would be trying to let them not get run over and... And then you'd have uh, police cars, and they'd have their lights going. And, and then you'd have a tractor, huge tractors pulling these floats with, you know, the kind with the, the double wheels on the back that my son just loves. Um, and then you'd have a whole string of motorcycles, um, you know, that have come from miles around to ride in this, in this festival and eat some Polish sausage. Um, so the big grand uh, production for even a small town. What, what's going on in that situation? Well, Osceola, Georgia is having a festival, a reason to celebrate what's unique about them and to put it on display, to say, look at our strength, look at our, our might, look at our, our big tractors, look at our big fire trucks, look at our police cars. Let, let's, let's put it on display, show it off, and celebrate it. Glory in what is unique about us and what is our power and our strength. Well, that's the picture of what's going on here in Isaiah 60 at the dawn of Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom in full. And he says as this, as this new city is set up, as this new heavens and new earth is, is, is set up, there's a, there's a p- big parade that happens. And what happens is, is the glory of all the nations is, is paraded into this, this city before King Jesus. And it says the kings lead the procession. The kings, as the representatives of their unique culture, with, with, with what's unique about them, which the glory of that culture comes and submits it to the Lord. Basically saying, hey, you, you, my, my authority has been derived this whole time. It's been of you, whether I've acknowledged it or not, and now I'm coming and, and presenting it back to the rightful owner. Um, and so you see the, the, the parade of nations as, as a, an example of hey, this is, this is craziness, this is celebration, this is pomp, this is parade, but it represents the greatness of, of all these different cultures. And you see it in the new heavens and the new earth, which there will be a lot for us to say about that. Before we get there, let me, let me just set some of you at ease. Don't worry, I don't think all of, of the new heavens and the new earth, I don't think eternity will be one big frenzied parade uh, it, it, this is the start, um, so it, it, there's, there's clues that things will settle down. It will be a time of, of peace and enjoyment. Um, but it does say that there may be some continuity between what you see celebrated in this parade and what actually we find in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, what, what, do we, what do we draw from this? And we'll, we'll look at some specific things, but first of all, to get there, we need to review real quickly of what we've said about culture. That culture itself, cultural artifacts, things that we create, art, music, business, um, are not in themselves neither good or bad. They're a product of creation. In the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve were set there, and it was good. It was uh, without flaw, but it was unfinished. They were to take what was beautiful, what was good in the garden, and cultivate it even more. To bring out its beauty, and then to take what was good of the garden and to spread it throughout God's good earth and creation. Uh, I, Richard, I think you say it, Moo or Mao, he says it this way, and we've talked about it in here. Adam, he pictures Adam taking a branch and, and breaking it off and saying, you know, I've been trying to pick up these leaves with my hands, but this branch looks perfectly suited to rake these leaves up. Actually, I'll call this a rake. And as he does so, what has he done? He's created a cultural artifact, and he's named it. He's called it a rake, and so he's expanding upon God's good creation, doing what God has called him to do to rule to fill the earth with God's glory. To subdue actually means to, to draw from below with the picture of, of drawing a water from a well. And that's what we're called to do as, as humans, to, to draw out from the earth a new beauty, a new reality that, that lies beneath the surface, that awaits our ability and skill to make it come to be. That is a, a huge, significant thing that God has given us to do as image bearers. But we know that what we often do is fill the earth not with things that bring them glory, but we fill it with a lot of junk. We fill it with things that actually glory, give glory to us and not to him. One author said it this way, The problem with materialism is not that materials exist, but that we're not relating to them in a proper and beautiful way. We're taking the materials, the raw materials that God has given us, and we're using them for sinful means. Well, what does that mean for what we see here in this picture of the holy city. Well, I want to take one example of culture that we see here and use it as a, as a metaphor for everything else that, that we see. And one of, one of the things that we see coming into the city, parading as, as the glory of one of the nations, is these things called the ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish. In the days of Isaiah, the ships of Tarshish were magnificent trading vessels. They were admired around the world. You read about them in various passages of Scripture. And they basically carried riches all around the Mediterranean Sea and brought wealth to their trading partners. In Second Chronicles 9, you see a passage that says, Every three years the fleet would return carrying gold and silver and ivory and apes and baboons. And you can picture coming into the harbor and, and kids and adults alike running to see, Okay, what, what are the ships of Tarshish brought this time? What glories are, are there? Archaeologists assume that Tarshish was an ancient city located in southern Spain. It was prosperous and powerful, and the right to trade with a, a city like this was a, was a feather in your cap. Psalm 72 says that getting goods from Tarshish would be a fine tribute to, to a king. So you've got represented in these ships, you've got wealth, you've got size, but you've also got the distance that they would travel. And you think of a character like Jonah, which we'll talk more about in a minute, that he's fleeing you know, all the way to get away from, from Nineveh. He's fleeing all the way to Tarshish, this faraway, um, glorious land. And so because of their wealth and their mileage and their might, they were among the most visible symbols of, of commercial power of their day. It would be like what we think of when we think of the Coca-Cola logo. You know, what's, what's the goal of Coca-Cola? To put a Coke in every person's hand in the world, right? Huge vision. So it's Coca-Cola is seen everywhere. No matter where you go in the world, you see the Coca-Cola logo, which is a symbol of commercial power and strength and glory, of success, an emblem of human pride and profit. That's what the ships of Tarshish were. Well, here's the problem. In Isaiah 2 and in other passages, you see that 
emblems like the ships of Tarsus are it's announced that they will be humiliated, that they will be laid low, that they will be uh, devoted to destruction. So how can a ship, who's the, the symbol of human might and wealth and self-reliance, be humiliated on the day of the Lord? And yet we find it here in Isaiah 60 when the new heavens and the new earth are being celebrated and revealed. Well, it's similar to what we talked about last week. If you were here, we talked about in Second Peter 3 and in other passages, this idea of destroying, of devoting, is, is used as not a, an annihilation of a completely doing away with, but of a taking every impurity out of it so that its function can now be used to bring glory to the Lord and not for simple purposes. Um, one author says it this way, We might think of breaking here, as more like the breaking of a horse rather than the breaking of a vase. The judgment is meant to tame, not to destroy. The ships will be harnessed for service in the holy city. It's it's not then the ships as such that will be destroyed. It's their former function that will perish. I love that picture of a wild horse that is tamed, is is brought under control so that you can direct its efforts to speed you in the direction that you want to go. Deuteronomy 2 and Joshua 6 have similar language of destroying and of devoting to the Lord. So that the idea is that God is not appalled by the existence of the ships of Tarshish. He's appalled by the pride that people take in them. And that he must get rid of this pride before these ships can can be brought into heaven and and give him glory. Somebody said it this way. I love this. Revelation 21.5. It says not... I am making all new things. What does it say? I am making all things new. And that's what's happening here in Isaiah 60 with all of these items of culture that are listed. That God has said earlier in in his word in Isaiah that these, these things will be humbled. They will be destroyed. But it's not an annihilation. It's a breaking. It's a harnessing all of their efforts so that they can be employed not for sinful human purposes but to bring glory to the Lord. The point is this. Heaven, I think, will be full of culture because culture making, properly devoted to God, gives him glory. And because culture is inherent into how humans experience life on earth. So if Jesus is coming here, why would we not expect there to be some semblance of culture? Putting humans on a new earth without culture would be like placing a fish in an empty fishbowl. It would be so disorienting, so foreign to who we are and how we were made to live. Think about it this way. Think about all the ways that humans use culture to mess up God's intent and God's peace. And then imagine, if you can, God taking all of those things and setting them right. That's the picture of Isaiah 60. You see in in verses 15 and following... All of these things are going to be set right. Actually, verse 14, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despise shall bow at your feet. Verse 15, Where have you been forsaken and hated with no one passing through? I will make you majestic forever. God is going about setting all things right, including cultural, cultural artifacts, things that we put our hands to here. There will be a destructive devotion, a cataclysmic consecration. Um, it's... The idea of it is, even though the scriptures tell us we can't fully see it or imagine it, there will be some continuity between this world and the next of what he's doing. 
don't know how many of you have seen the movie August Rush. Uh, it's one of those kind of movies that I really enjoy. It's a story of a, a little boy that has this unique gift. Uh, he's, he's, he's an orphan that he hears, he hears things that most people don't hear. He'll hear in, in the tapping of a finger or the dripping of a faucet. He'll hear, hear, hear music. He hears uh, the percussion and beats. And he, he ends up finding his way to a city and he hears a siren and he hears a, a jackhammer and he hears the birds and he hears the wind. through. And it's all one big symphony. And you see him just in the middle of this crazy city just kind of swaying as he can hear what most people are walking by and missing. That's what God is up to in Isaiah 60. He's taking all the things that, that, that we miss out on, that we use for sinful purposes, and we just miss out on, on, man, this could be a glorious thing used of the Lord to bring him a whole lot of glory. And we're, we're using them for wrong, wrong reasons, wrong purposes. In Isaiah 60, he's saying he's going to come back, and he's going to destructively devote all of these things in the purifying fire. He's going to get rid of all the, the impure things, all the sinfulness of them. And then he's going to bring him into his city to give him the glory that, that should have rightly been given him all along. Um, one example of this to me is something we're going to study this summer at First Pres during our worship services. Is we're going to study the book of Jonah. What was Jonah's issue? Jonah's issue was that he was just perplexed that God would send him as a prophet to this pagan city of Nineveh, that, he would be, that God would even be interested in giving them a chance to be renewed, restored, redeemed. Because what they needed in his idea was judgment, destruction, in the sense of annihilation. Just blot them off the face of the earth. I'm, I'm not going to give this message of repentance because, God, I want you to do what you say you're going to do and just destroy them. But... And so Jonah runs, right? He gets on a what? A ship to Tarshish. Possibly one of these ships described here to flee from the presence of the Lord. And it's as if God says, go ahead and try to flee from me, but I'm going to bring you and the goods of, of your world and your plans, I'm going to bring them all back to me forever, ever. And you see it in the picture of how he, how he deals with Jonah. Uh, one author said it this way, Jonah had a hard time with this. He couldn't accept that God had the patience to try to save the worst examples of human pride and rebellion. He admitted to God that the reason he tried to flee was that he didn't really want to save Nineveh. He wanted Nineveh destroyed, not devoted to the Lord. And so the point is this, God finds it less worthwhile, it seems, he finds it less worthwhile to eliminate cultural artifacts than to humble them and use them for his purposes. So the challenge for us is to accept that this may be God's view of culture and then to get on board with it and see things the way God does. Romans 12 talks about it in this way. Let me flip over there and read it real quick just to give us context. It's a familiar verse. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, uh, to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea there, the language actually means don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Stretch it out. You were made for something so much bigger than what you're settling for, what you're being squeezed into. Stretch it out. That's, that's the picture here. 
that God is saying, hey, these ships of Tarsus, you've squeezed them into a small little mold and used them for your own self-pride and, 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 and profit. And when I come, I'm going to destructively devote them, and I'm going to stretch them back out so that they can scream of my glory, and they can speed, actually, the children of Israel to my doorstep. Um, so what does that mean for us today in the few minutes we have left? Um, well, first of all, it means that we are to board the ships of Tarshish of our day. We're to join up with the Coca-Colas uh, and the, the other businesses of our day. We're to put our hands to, to work in our culture with the idea of doing what Romans 12 says, more and more, little bit by little bit, stretching them so that they scream of God's glory, the, the intent that they were designed for and where they're headed eventually so that they can, can, can scream more of God's glory and not our own. But here's, here's what we end up teaching our recent college grads that come to us in the fellows program every year. Is that we've got to beware because, number one, the ships are powerful and they have so much momentum that the efforts of one believer can often be met with frustration. Probably 75% of what we do with recent college graduates and fellows that have a huge desire to, to, they've just graduated, they've got this degree, they're ready to take on the world for the Lord and change it. And they get out there in the first year in the, in the business world and they're just beat down and frustrated. And so we give them a year to work through that in context of a loving community here and work through those issues of what do you do when you meet with frustration? Well, we talk through it. We see, well, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? What does it mean to work for, for, for change for the Lord and, and being patient and looking to Him? But the bigger problem often is that we sail on the wrong kinds of winds ourselves. We're too worldly to do much weeding out of worldliness sometimes. And so we have to, be, we have to start with our own hearts. And so what we want to work towards is this idea of hopeful realism, that we await the coming transformation, but we wait actively, not passively. We follow the commands of the Bible that say pour out your lives for the afflicted, to comfort the brokenhearted, to love your neighbor, to feed the hungry. And by doing so, in essence, what we're doing is we're reaching into the future of what's going to be certain and going to come, and we're pulling it just a little bit into our present world. We can't realize it in any sort of full way here. Jesus is the one that does that. He's going to do it in full. But the prayer that we pray for ourselves is that through us, God, may your kingdom come just a little bit more. May the eventual restoration and the reign of justice and righteousness be made a little bit more obvious by our lives, by the way we live in our culture, not forgetting two things. Who is, is really going to do this ultimately? Our Lord Jesus. And that he will. So that when we put our hands to change for the Lord, to, to do the things that he's called us to do, where things are headed, that we can know this is where it's going to be completed one day. He's frustrating as it is for me, and as, sometimes with as little fruit as I see, it's going to be completed. God's going to do this. This is what he cares about. This is what he's up to. And he says that in Isaiah 60, verse 22. That's how it ends. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. I will do it swiftly. I love appetizers. I love side dishes. I can eat a whole meal if I go to the right restaurant of just side dishes. But uh, to neglect the entree, the main dish, is, is foolish. To eat just to fill myself up on baked potato and not eat the steak is foolish. 
because the filet is what the meal is all about, right? A lot of times, I feel like in the church, we don't celebrate and enjoy the side dishes of where things are headed. This is a side dish. The fact that our new heavens and new earth, where things are headed, will be made up of, of real things. There will be some continuity. They'll be re- redeemed and restored. But that is a side dish. The entree is that Jesus himself will be there. That is our true hope. That is really what we totally look for and anticipate um, and, and that, that gives us courage. But we can enjoy. We can, as we think about and anticipate the, the, the side dishes, the appetizers, um, we can be excited about that and look forward to them as well, as long as we don't forget what the main thing is about, Jesus himself being in our midst. And Isaiah 60 talks a lot about that as well, if you read it. Let's pray uh, that God will help us board the ships of Tarshish today and a little more bring his kingdom to bear. God, thank you that you've given us all different callings and roles in your world. And we pray, God, as we go from here even today, uh, back to, to work or to home or to families or whatever you've called us to in this stage of our life, that you'd help us to be about cultivating it a little bit more to bring you glory, uh, to build your kingdom, knowing that you're the one who ultimately does it, and knowing that in your time and in your way, you will bring it in full. Pray that give us courage and uh, excitement about what we put our hands to today. In Jesus' name, amen.